On behalf of the National Public Housing Museum, we thank you for tuning into our oral history audio listening series out of the archives. In each episode, we will share a diverse range of stories told by public housing residents from our oral history archive. Stories make up the backbone of any culture. They tell us who we are and where we are from. They create empathy and understanding, and they allow us an opportunity to share our experiences and learn from the words of others. The stories in our archive lift up the voices of an oftentimes marginalized community and create a space for important conversations to happen. Here at the museum, we firmly believe in the power and importance of everyday stories and their ability to expand and redefine our understanding of American history. Our mission is to preserve, promote, and propel the right of all people to a place where they can live and prosper, a place to call home. And we hope that this collection of stories not only reinforces that belief, but can shed light on an American experience that is all too often left unheard. This episode, Candyman Was a Candyman, People of Cabrini Green, was co-curated by the Chicago History Museum and is inspired by the release of the new Candyman film directed by Nia DaCosta, produced by Jordan Peele, and set in Chicago's Cabrini Green community. Like many other public housing complexes across the country, Cabrini Green has a complicated history of crime and neglect. These issues were often exacerbated in the media and highlighted in popular culture during the 1980s and 1990s. The area has since seen major redevelopment due to its proximity to downtown, including a combination of upscale high-rises and townhouses, with some units of public housing still remaining, creating a mixed-income neighborhood which garnered mixed reactions. In this episode, narrators from the community share their experiences of life in Cabrini Green, with stories including residents' creative aspirations, an uneasy gang truce after the murder of seven-year-old Dantrell Davis, the ins and outs of socializing in school, as well as insight to who the infamous Candyman really was. The narratives from this episode all lived in Cabrini Green and include Dolores Van Pelt, who lived there from 1972 to 1975, J.R. Fleming, who lived there from 1976 to 1984, Betty Howard, who lived there from 1958 to 1960, Roger Procise, who lived there from 1954 to 1967, Tanika Chu, who lived there from 1978 to 2003, Raymond McDonald, who lived there from 1993 to the present day, Catherine Davis, who lived there from 1957 to 1967, and Alderman Walter Burnett Jr., who lived there from 1960 to 1984. The stories span from 1954 to the present day. My name is Roger Procise. Uh, I, I lived in the row houses, and so there were no stores. Uh, the only thing we had in the row houses was uh, uh, what we called uh, Mr. Tootsie. And Mr. Tootsie was a resident in the row houses. He had, he had a row house, and he sold penny candy out of his row house. And so we had uh, Mr. Tootsie. And then once a week, my mother and uh, one of my siblings or I would walk to an A&P store that was probably about a mile uh, from our row house. Yeah, we didn't have uh, a lot of money, uh, and so we were lucky uh, the times we did have a uh, nickel uh, for, for, for candy. I, I mean, I mentioned that I, I think the government, I support the government helping poor people. Really, I was poor. Yeah. 
I'm no longer poor, and if the government didn't help me, who knows, right, what would have happened. So I, I fully support uh, the government intervening and helping, basically. And then it pays off, right? Now I'm a taxpayer. My name is Betty Howard. From, from the Wyndon Hotel, we got this opportunity to move into the new CHA housing project, Cabrini. So we moved in there, and um, at first it was a mixed, uh, you know, it was diverse. There were all kinds of people there. But as time went on, of course, that's, that ended. Um, and it became, uh, you know, I, was, I took a, ge a geography course a few years back, and um, my teacher talked about what happened, you know, in, in poor neighborhoods, and particularly, you know, the projects. As soon as the population changed, services were withdrawn. And I think that's true of Lathrop as well. You know, that's one of the reasons it went downhill. So I think um, it's unfortunate that they couldn't allow for more low-income housing. But it's not just allowing for it. You've got to have the services. You know, you know, a perfect example is what happened in Cabrini. You know, it started out good. And then what's the sense of building these, um, you know, storehouses for poor families and then letting, you know, letting them destroy each other. So um, I wish there were more low-income housing, and I hope that w what little they have there is, is really kept up. My name is Walter Burnett, Jr. Later on, there used to be a guy over in the, in the Reds uh, at a building called 911. Uh, I think it's 911. 911 Hope was it or 911 Lopez? I think 911 Hope. There was a guy named uh, Mr. Taylor. Mr. Taylor used to let us use the basement of the building, and we used to go down there. And we used to skate, have dances. Uh, we used to have dances uh, down there. You know, it used to keep us out of trouble. Sometimes play ping pong and stuff like that. You know, in our neighborhood, everybody was real social. All of the parents were trying to, you know, make sure the kids had something to do. Yeah. They would be involved in the summer programs, making sure you had a summer job, make sure you get those choke burgers, you know, those thick old sandwiches with the thick cheese and the meat on it and the juice, you know. Um, you know, everybody, you know, such great people. Mo there's a lot of people that, that lived in the neighborhood that were social workers. They had to work for some organization or something like that. Um, there was an area in the neighborhood, uh, it's a facility in the neighborhood called Lower North Center on Oak and uh, Cedric. And we used to go there and play. They had a basketball court, um, ping pong tables, pool tables, card games, all kind of board games. We used to play in there you know, run around, have fun, team programs. Uh, I learned how to play football there, uh, basketball. Uh, matter of fact, uh, the guy who taught me how to play football, he's still around. <laughs> right when I was a little kid, he's still around. Who was that? God, dog, I know his name. And uh, I'm blanking out right now, but his sister, the ironic part of it, his sister was a lady named Marion Stamps. And uh, they were totally different. She was like more of a radical person. He was yeah. more of a conservative guy. You never knew they were related if you didn't know because they were like, 
they both helped people, but from different angles. Yeah. One was a fighter to help people, and one was just part of the program to help people. Dolores Van Pelt, they're going to eventually take all of that away. And there's going to be more people living in there with higher income. That's what I believe is going to happen. I think sometimes they allow us to be a placeholder. You know, we stay there. Yeah, they can stay here now. And then uh, we get we get to that land, that spot later. Well, the only other choice they had was to be bacon. And whoever owned it wouldn't be getting any money for a bacon apartment. So, and they can't change everything at one time. Now, that's not to say that the people who come in might be prejudiced or, you know, don't care about black people, because that's not true. You can't say any one group is all one thing, all prejudice. That's not true. There are white people that would die for you and me as they would a white person. Mm -hmm. So we are all different, and, and that's okay. Willie J.R. Fleming. The J is for just, the R is for righteousness. I think all of the changes that happened over there, I, I'm always going to be in my feelings about it, especially given today's COVID-19 pandemic um, and a need and call for more public housing than ever. Because all of these people can't go to work, they can't pay their rent, they're going to be needing public housing, right? So as we always stated, today, me, tomorrow, you. I think that was the hardest change to witness, you know, watching public housing come down, homeowners be displaced and foreclosed on, and just the loss of black wealth through real estate or housing. I think it's been one of the hardest changes, you know, that I had to adjust to. And, and how I really feel about it, I'm mixed, right? Because I know that as long as there's young people like you and others and get actively engage in this world and make it a better place, then we stand a chance, you know? So I, I, I'm okay. Um, I think what I like the most about living in Cabrini Green, like again, was a sense of community, you know, but I, 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 I would close on saying this, right? People talk about what you like the most about just living somewhere. I want to talk about what I like the most about being somewhere, because I'm always in Cabrini. I still work over there, right? And I tell people I don't have to live there to care for them, right? I don't have to be there to care for them, right? When you have a sense of community and a sense of belonging to a community, you know, whether you're there or not, you're going to be care. You're going to have care, concern. You're going to make some type of investment, or making sure the place that you once called home will always be a home for you, whether you're there or not. Yeah. And so the work we do today, with our coalition, uh, we're making sure residents, you know, current, former, past residents are still protected by the consent decree. Uh, we've increased jobs and contracts opportunities in the neighborhood, have several contracts over there in our own neighborhood uh, through a couple companies we run uh, with some resident-owned businesses and section three companies from over there. Um, so we're still doing our nonprofit activity, fighting for our residents' right, providing, you know, PPE, providing resources to the residents, uh, um, gift cards, you know, you know, everything. You know, we're still doing what we're supposed to do for the hood, like the hood did for us, you know. Um, our biggest hope for community is what we're doing right now, to be a part of the redevelopment of our community and to manage our community when it's redeveloped. So we're still on course. So, you know, our history is a living history in Cabrini Green, you know? So I want folks to be confused about this oral history being the history of J.R. Cabrini Green. No, this is a living history, you know? 
You know, our, our life is a living work, you know, so that's what it is for me. Cindy Gutschew. I lived in Cabrini and then I got on Section 8. You know, they was tearing down the projects, so once they tore down the projects and we made our transition, they gave everybody Section 8. You had three choices. You could either have a right to return, public, permanent Section 8, or scatter site. So I still have, I have Section 8, but I do have a right to return. So if I want to return, I can return. Well, first of all, I lived in a Cabrini all my life. So I wanted to see something different. So it wasn't really a bad change, but just like looking for apartments and finding places to live, that was a hassle. But other than that, I like it better than staying in the projects, even though like everything that's going on in Chicago today, I feel like the projects would have been a safer place for me and my kids right now with everything going on in Chicago. And if I can go back, I would. They need to build a <laughs> They need to rebuild our building. Cause you know, back in the days, like when I was a kid, that's when they used to be shooting real bad in Cabrini. When I was a kid, when I was coming up. Hey, how you doing? They, they had just got a peace treaty after Dantrell Davis got killed. So before that, like we wasn't allowed to, you know, go outside and play in the playground and do normal stuff that kids would do because our parents was afraid they was gonna come start shoot. Like when Dantrell Davis got killed, I was standing right there. I was 10 feet from him. You know, his mama walking down the ramp. I'm standing on the steps. These the steps, this the ramp. They walking down, they walk on out. I'm standing right here, like, right there when he got killed. Literally, 10 feet away. Like, that's crazy. Oh, Danny. Today his birthday, too. <laughs> so, Liz. Once that happened, that's when the peace tree started. That's when we was able to start going outside and doing normal stuff that kids do, like play in the playground. Then we used to be able to walk to the beach because we stayed right there. The beach went nowhere from where we lived there. We go straight down Oak Street and the beach right there. All my childhood memories, I miss. I miss Cabrini. I do. Because even like after all of the bad stuff that went on over there, after all of that, you know what I'm saying? It was it was a nice place. It was a nice place to live. After the shooting and all that, nobody was shooting, nobody was fighting. All the game banging was over with. Like, 
we used to just be outside all night. Like, we ain't had to worry about nothing. Like, had these kids coming up missing and all this, all this stuff that's going on in Chicago right now. Like, when we stayed in Cabrini, like, nobody could come in our building. If you didn't live up in there, you couldn't come up in there. They ain't let nobody come in our building that didn't live up in there. And then, like, you know, the older guys, you know, they, they watched after us. You know what I'm saying? They told us when it wasn't right to go out and when we can go out. But one thing, they made sure we were safe, though. They knew when something was finna go down. They tell us, y'all go upstairs. Don't come back down. And then it was like, like they say, it take a village to raise a kid. That was our village. Cause everybody, that we was all family. It was a 19 story building. And it was seven apartments on each floor. Like everybody knew everybody. Like we was one big happy family. We can go to the next building from this building to that building without going downstairs, going outside. We'll just go through the holes. Like it was had the apartments was made, like they made holes through the walls so we don't have to go downstairs. So we'll just clam through the wall to through the next building. But I miss Cabrini. I do. As bad as I did, used to want to leave. Now I want to go back. Hi, I'm Randy McDonald. Shaq. Shaq. Yeah, that's right. what most people where I'm from call me. It was a black community full of vibrancy, full of togetherness, full of violence, full of frustrations, full of poverty, full of workers. We had every dynamic of what you could think of in society inside of our community. When I was, I'll say about four, I made the mistake of calling my grandmother mom. And from then on, she didn't ne she she told me, never call me mom. I'm your grandmother. You know, and um she she let me know who my family was. But even bigger than that, she let me know that my family was Cabrini. You know, I had family outside of Cabrini as well, but the main hub of family that I was around was in Cabrini. And that was like in 1997, 98, um, early 2000s, was around the time I became a teenager. And, I be, and then I started to become a part of a film called 70 Acres of Chicago, Cabrini Green. And I didn't realize how important this film was about um, Cabrini. Catherine Davis. So as a little girl, uh, it was like, you know, it was, uh, it, it, it was a, a, a wonderful experience for me. The reason why I know when I look at it now, after we moved away out of the projects, which we moved, uh, we left the projects in 1967. And uh, I remember we were so sad I, I was crying and everything because I didn't want to leave. Uh, uh, I didn't want to leave the north side. I didn't want to leave, uh, you know, where we had. I, 
I, you know, where I grew up and, you know, my most, my memories were, you know, know were the best and moving to the south side where there was you know lots of discrimination and you know just a lot of just darkness and you know and, and that was because uh, from what I understand blacks were allowed to finally open up bank accounts and then they got loans to uh, buy a home and so a lot of black families were leaving out of the projects to buy their own homes. So that, that part is what I remembered, uh, you know, that it was, you know, it was, uh, uh, I, I didn't know that the projects was something that, you know, it was like a transit, you know, a, 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 you, you don't live there your whole life. You just stay there long enough and then you move on. But we were there more than 10 years. So, but the, uh, what I remember the most is that, uh, it, we had so much of what we needed and not so much of what we wanted, which meant that we created from what we had. Looking out my window every, every day and looking as far and wide as I could see and looking at downtown and said, because I always had wanted to sing, I said, I'm gonna sing in every building that's downtown Chicago. I'm going to sing in those buildings. And believe it or not, I have sang in many, many buildings downtown Chicago. <laughs> and uh, groundbreaking parties. So uh, um, I, I had my I had my good side and I had my not so good side. But I thought my not so good side was because I didn't want, I was trying to change. I didn't want to be like afraid and feel like I was, you know, that I was being judged just by my skin color or my height, you know, because also back then we didn't have mirrors. A lot of black families don't have didn't have mirrors in their homes. They only had the bathroom mirrors. And because you, you didn't want to look at yourself because you, uh, because you wanted to be white. And so we used to, we made Natanola skin cream. Uh, we made their company billionaires because all of us were using bleaching cream thinking that we could use this cream and it was going to turn our skin white and it didn't all it did was you know you you put some cream on your hands and you just keep rubbing your skin your the top layer is going to come off but you're still black you know and and so it finally we finally realized that that wasn't going to be you know that movie called Candyman, the horror movie? Yes. Well, that was not true. Every, like I said, everything they said was negative. Candyman was a Candyman that his name was Mr. Foster, and he would sell candy in the neighborhood throughout all the buildings. He, he had a station wagon, and when he would be out there, everybody would be hollering. Mr. Foster, Candyman, Candyman. 
and we would all get our pennies together because back then a five pieces of candy was a penny so we, we you could get candy so we would all be running downstairs the candy man the candy man well they made it into you know they made it into a horror movie and so um that you know that and 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 the movie coolie high i i know jackie you know a lot of great people came jackie taylor came from there major lands gene chandler jerry butler and many others that you know came from there and we're all part of the music scene and the performing arts so that just go to show you that it was just of you know that we did we we made something of it and continued to uh, fulfill our dreams in the music business so um or in the entertainment business and being able to share this with others to that to let people know that uh there was there there was morals and respect and values and uh in our in that type of experience for us once again, the NPHM thanks you for listening to this episode of Out of the Archives. This series is supported by the Institute of Museum and Library Services, the Illinois Arts Council Agency, Illinois Humanities, the Kresge Foundation, and the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events. This episode was engineered by Seth Engel. We'd like to give one last huge thanks to our storytellers, including Walter Burnett Jr., Tanika Chu, Catherine Davis, Betty Howard, J.R. Fleming, Raymond McDonald, Roger Procise, and Dolores Van Pelt. We'd also like to thank this episode's co-curators at the Chicago History Museum, as well as the museum's oral history corps and other oral historians who helped to gather these stories, including Hannah Barg, Francesco De Salvatore, Ashley Jefferson, and Shakira Johnson. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to sharing more stories with you very soon.